Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest on the podcast today is the chief scientist of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, Dr. Sarah Kapnick. What a get for our little podcast, right? I knew of Sarah first when she was a scientist at the NOAA Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory in Princeton, a job she held for a number of years after having got her PhD. But she had already worked on climate before grad school at an investment bank when almost no one in that industry was thinking about it seriously yet. And then, after doing her PhD and spending a bunch of years at GFDL, she went back to another bank before getting recruited to be NOAA chief scientist. So that's the short version of Sarah's career. The long version, of course, is what you'll hear in a couple minutes. Sarah's research has been on climate modeling and climate prediction, including studies on snow and water resources and extreme events of various kinds and a wide range of other topics. And it's all great science. But what distinguishes her beyond that is her ability to look at the big picture on climate and what it means for people and institutions and countries, and to work with diverse experts and stakeholders, and to manage and to lead. A lot of great scientists are not so great at dealing with the realities of the bureaucracies that our work lives in. Sarah is the counterexample. She's good at it. She even seems to like it. She's a natural leader, and I think you can hear that when she talks. And now we're moving from a past where our science was about telling the world that we have a problem to a future where we're trying to do things about it. And Sarah is the right person to help NOAA, which might be the most critical U.S. government agency on climate, to make that transition. So we talked about how Sarah became who she is today, starting as a math nerd in the Midwest, and then some of her formative research experiences where she wrote papers about specific impacts of climate change, first increases in Atlantic hurricane risk and then drought in the Western U.S., and then saw those impacts materialize in reality and become high-profile societal and media concerns after she'd predicted them. And as we progressed along her trajectory, we talked a lot more about climate risk and climate finance, the tension between basic and user-driven research, and how mentorship and management became important parts of her skill set and her career. One technical note, this episode was constructed from two separate interviews on two different dates. The first time, Sarah and I had a great conversation, and then the software I use for remote recording wouldn't let me have Sarah's track at the end due to the government firewall around the computer she was on. So it seemed like it was working, and then it didn't. Fortunately, Sarah had turned her phone on to record herself partway through, so we did get the latter part of that conversation, but we lost the earlier part. So then Sarah very kindly and generously agreed to another interview to fill in the earlier part. So so you might hear the sound quality change somewhere in the middle, and this is also why in the first part of the conversation you hear us referring to the time we had spoken earlier. But I think it all hangs together very well. Sarah has had a truly remarkable career so far, and she's now in a critically important position for climate science and climate action in the United States. So I'm deeply grateful to have had this chance to talk with her. So I'll stop now. Here's my conversation with Sarah Kapnick. Thank you so much. Dr. Kapnick, for doing this. Thank you. And, I'm so excited to be here with you. And if it's okay, um, I, I'm instructed that it's okay to call you Sarah. Yes. As let's, is our habit. Let's go in, by uh, first, first name basis first names. for the duration. Okay. So as we often do, um, I would like to start with your biography. So where is Noah's chief scientist from? I am originally from the Midwest. I grew up mainly um, in and outside Chicago. Yeah. And how did you first get interested in science? I was always a math nerd and always loved science. Uh, Growing up as a kid, you got really big weather in the Midwest. Um, And also, I just loved the natural natural world. We would go to the nature location that my grandmother worked at that did conservation efforts around wetlands and around birds and forest animals in uh, Michigan and very rural Michigan. And a lot of family were farmers. And so... I was really mm. interested in natural world, natural sciences, um, but also a really big math nerd, really loved math. Right. And because we've spoken before, I understood that actually the town you spent much of your childhood in, you, your parents chose because it had a school that was suited to your high level of math ability. Did I remember that right? Yeah, you did. Um, it had a really good math program for kids from a really young age. A lot of notable people were in my class at the time that worked in, work in big tech now that are big names. Um, and I chose science and government service. Do we want to do shout outs or no? No. To the big names? To. No. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> right. So math whiz in high school. 
and environmental science from grandma and generations of farmers. And so then tell me how you got into climate science. Because it wasn't yet, right, in high school. No, it wasn't yet. Um, I didn't even know that jobs like the ones I've had at NOAA or climate science could be an entire career. I went to Princeton University, again, because I loved math and I wanted to do theoretical mathematics. And so I ended up at Princeton University. I was doing theoretical mathematics. And I loved it. I love solving puzzles, um, working on math problems. But as I started doing math research in college, I realized how isolating mathematical research, particularly really theoretical mathematical research was, where you would be working on problems that um, would be very removed from the natural world, but also the community that you would talk to would be very, very small. Very few people would understand what you were working on. Mm. And I realized I wanted to work on problems that related more to the natural world and that related to things that I could see, things that I could understand that weren't so abstract. And Mm. so I got really interested in trying to figure out how could I still solve problems that were very mathematically based, um, but have it more in the world around me that I could see. And so being at Princeton and being in the early aughts, I went two different routes. I went the route of very quantitative finance, which is what a lot of people did. Mm. Um, And I also went and took my first course in uh, the climate sciences, which was physical oceanography. And it was taught by George Flander, someone who you've previously had on your podcast. And so I got really into it. I loved it. I even did senior thesis research with George Flander and getting data from uh, NOAA's Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory, which was based in Princeton. And I really got hooked on the types of problems you could ask related to climate. What was your senior thesis on? It was on the potential for different intensities of hurricanes from sea surface temperature or ocean oh, warming. Okay. Um, it was looking at early modeling and early data of ocean heat content and finding statistical anomalies regarding sea surface temperature or heat content with intensity. Right. And also looking at early model results and trying to say what that meant um, right. under climate change. And so this is like late 90s or early 2000s, I'm this is 2003, 2004. Right. So it was actually just before that whole subject blew up. Yeah. And I, I even remember it was when there was this very strong storm off the coast of Brazil that was named Katarina, that was considered one of the first potential tropical storm-like structures outside of a traditional basin. So there was this big discussion of what is that? What does it mean? And you know, the analysis was that it was hot ocean temperatures at that time, and it was different. And so it opened my eyes to the potential of this type of research, but also the fact that there might be new risks, new perils out there that we hadn't explored yet. And so history wasn't going to be a good indicator of what the future would hold. Right. And so you mentioned um, the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Lab, which, which as we'll get to, is a place you ended up working for a long time later. But in a sense, so that was, you, you hadn't chosen Princeton for that reason, but this was a major climate modeling lab that was on the campus. And so it was sort of fortuitous. Definitely fortuitous that I ended up there. Right. And so you did that and the finance and somehow were able to keep those two yeah, subjects I, in mind. I didn't know what I wanted to do. After college, I think some people, I'm amazed when I look at grad students and some of them are just so driven Mm. from the moment they set an undergraduate of the exact subject that they want to do and what they want to get their PhD in. They're just marching along, figuring that out. And for me, I was in college. I was exploring these different things. I really liked the problems of quantitative finance. I liked the problems of climate. And I didn't know what that meant, but I knew that I didn't want student loans in grad school. And I knew that I (laughs) wanted some work experience and so I went out and sought a really high-paying job, uh, the, the highest-paying job I could find on Wall Street as an investment banking analyst covering financial institutions. And the reason I chose that is it related to insurance and reinsurance and exchanges. And so I could learn about how climate information and whether data was used in the insurance industry and catastrophe industry to be able to understand how science is used in finance. So there was a decision already, though, that climate was a topic that I mean, that had already grabbed you at some yes, point, even though yes. you hadn't and, figured out the way to, you know, the long-term yeah, I, path. I, I wanted a job in climate finance at a time when that wasn't something that existed other than people thinking that it might exist in the insurance or reinsurance industry. And so I was trying to put it together. Um, in college, learning about climate and 
doing the research and taking the classes, I was hooked on the subject, but also really concerned about what that meant for the future as I was learning more and more about it. And because I also had this financial sense, I was also thinking about what are the costs and what are the future costs and what are the future costs of inaction? Um, And I was learning about the case studies of the formation of the National Flood Insurance Program and other programs and how they were formed because risk was mispriced and then there were massive losses or bankruptcies. And so I was trying to make sense of how should we adequately quantify these risks and how will financial markets change um, and understanding of risk and pricing of risk change as there's more information about climate and more information comes out, but also as climate continues to warm and is manifested in the real world. I mean, yeah, it's remarkably forward thinking for an undergraduate because in hindsight, I mean, now there's a whole substantial industry that's grown up around this in the last five years. And I'm sure you know there were people thinking about it back then, but not many compared to what there is now and and for someone as still in college to sort of put those pieces together and conceive a career was remarkably uh, prescient or something. You said that to me the last time we talked and I thought about it for a bit and you know my grandfather's generation and my my other grandmother still lived in this farm community and seeing yeah. farm communities and how a big drought or a big heat uh. wave or uh. rains could affect people. Yeah. Um, so dramatically and you have just complete losses and then you either are hoping that there's a federal payout or you're hoping that you had some sort of insurance project or you had enough savings that you can get through that bad year so in some ways having visualized and seen the impacts even just a bad weather year can have on a community that had a very big influence on me i see so there was a personal uh, dimension of of family history that gave you Mm -hmm. that that insight okay so you're at Princeton, you get your senior thesis, then you go to Goldman Sachs. Did I get that right? Yes, that's where I was. Yeah. And so do you want to say a little bit more about what you what you did there and how that influenced what, what came after? Yeah. So I did general corporate advisory, M&A and securities work. But then there was this group that did structured products for long-dated risk. They did things mm. called catastrophe bonds, yes. which insurers sell their insurance. But then they don't necessarily want to hold all that risk on their books. So they can either purchase reinsurance from a reinsurer giving them insurance, or either an insurer or even the reinsurer can get rid of the risk on their books by creating something called a catastrophe bond. And it's Mm -hmm. a bond that is sold on the open market. So investors pay for it, pay into it. And it has an interest rate, a study. But then whenever there's a a disaster, there's then a payout from that bond, which then pays out what that risk was. And so these have been done for hurricanes, for extreme weather events, for floods, for earthquakes even. And so I was working on some of that structure to try and understand it. How did they do it? I mean, what kind of climate information was involved? They were all based on historical data. And they were either based on reanalysis or they were based on stations or combinations of stations, or even they built their own very complex catastrophe models um, to be able to quantify what the risk might be. So those could be generating their own fake hurricanes um, over time of where they thought hurricanes could be and what hurricanes could do damages to try and make an assessment, or they would be just look at all the historical tracks and make analysis from that. Or even let's find some stations in these locations that show storm surge or show heat, or show winds, and then use that to build an understanding of the probability of the past to then use that going forward for what the likelihood of damages might be. And so sometimes they would include a trend in this Mm -hmm. from the historical data to try and project it out. But there wasn't really a firm understanding of how climate change might be affecting things or would potentially lead to a mischaracterization of the risks during the time that these bonds were structured. And typically they were like two to five years that most of them were structured for. But there wasn't this assumption that the historical data wouldn't be helpful for understanding future risk. And I remember getting into discussions with people about this because I had just come from working with some of the best data from GFDL and from NOAA on the subjects around hurricanes and how should you be quantifying them and quantifying climate impact and like, is that something that should be done or is going to be done in the future? But there was, that wasn't entering into the way that these models were being built for risk mm-hmm. at the time. 
And as a result, it really formulated in my mind that I wanted to go and learn more about this, become an expert in it, um, because I saw that it, it wasn't coming into the modeling that was being done on Wall Street at the time. And I, I feel like because this comes up so much um, when I talk to people in this industry, we should clarify, since you sort of brought it up, that it's not so much the issue that the climate is going to change significantly during the time of the bond, but that the historical data that's being used to quantify the risk, whether directly or as input to a catastrophe model, treats the whole history as though it's the same and the present as though it's the same as the past. Yeah, it would treat the historical data that either as there, there should be stationarity. And so there's an assumption that there wasn't really any changing climate during that time. So you would equally treat the last 10 years as you would a decade, 80 years ago. You'd assume that those produce the same amount of information. But there's also been an assumption that I was seeing at the time, and I've seen it um, in discussions in the years, in recent years as well, is that a simple trend line can just be extended into the future oh, okay. mm -hmm. to quantify risk as well, mm -hmm. which um, we now see acceleration in certain climate extreme values. We even see major events happening that aren't, there are no analogs in the historical record now. Um, take, for instance, the heat wave that hit the Pacific Northwest yeah. um, last summer. Yeah. So there are no analogs for those events in the historical record. So if you're only right. looking at the historical record to try and quantify the risk today, you could be missing something because the very nature of the extremes, especially the most extreme extremes, may lead to them not being represented in the record until much later when you think that there is no risk of those types of events, but suddenly they start happening. So you brought this up, and, and but it, there wasn't the framework to sort of um, address yeah. it. I was a junior analyst. I was two years out of college, yeah. <laughs> and one or two years out of college, and I didn't have a PhD or credentials other than an undergraduate mathematics major from Princeton. Right. So people said to me, you know, if you really think this is the future and you want to be an expert in this and tell people what to do, you probably need a PhD on this very technical subject. And I said, okay, I'm going to do that. And I think people thought I was joking. <laughs> But then I actually applied to graduate schools. Why did they think you were joking? Because you were making too much money and you... <laughs> well, how many scientists do you know that worked in investment banking before they became PhD climate scientists? Not too many. <laughs> but people have done a bunch of weird things, but yeah. I know. But it wasn't <laughs> standard career path. So I didn't. So right. not a lot of people leave to get PhDs uh, from right. doing what I was doing. But you did it though. I did. At UCLA with... Alex Hall, yeah? Yes, I did. Um, yes, my PhD was in atmospheric and oceanic sciences, and I had a certificate in leaders in sustainability from the Institute of Environment and Sustainability. Oh, wh what's that? Is that a thing within UCLA? Or? Yeah, it's a, um, a cross-school institute on sustainability. So it's heavily led by the business school and the policy school. Okay. Um, it's like a mini program um, that you can take on top of the standard PhD and the MBAs even take it so they can get more exposure to technology and science. I see. Okay, great. And so your, your PhD thesis was on snow, if I remember right. Yes, it was on snowpack in the American West and how climate change was altering the amount and the seasonal cycle of snowpack in the West and what that meant for the future. And if I recall right, for when we spoke last time, your work was timely in that it happened a little bit before the really bad drought started appearing. Yeah, I, I chose to go to UCLA and I wanted to work on something related to water because from my time in finance, I thought that that would be an emerging issue in climate that I wanted to be aware of and really understand. And so I decided a couple things came together and I was able to work on choose my research topic and I chose snowpack in the West and was understanding the future about how it was melting earlier, how it was also starting to form later and all the processes that were involved in that and was involved in the state with the state. There were these meetings in the state to represent what is the state of climate science and um, a series of reports, which I um, contributed one for for the California Energy Commission and Environment. And um, so I was looking on snowpack and what that would mean for water resources and having discussions around that. Um, little did we know that the drought that we thought was a short-term drought was turning into what is now 
considered the worst drought in 1200 years. Yeah. Wow. And so with, and when did that become apparent? It, well, you got a few wet, you got a wet year in there. And then it was, I would say about two or three years. It was in my postdoc that we then started having more and more discussions about the need for seasonal prediction and more products to be able to understand um, when there would be water versus when there wasn't because the drought was continuing. And that was when it started really having more discussions around what if this gets worse? What is what will the planning be? What is the science? What are the science challenges? And the California Department of Water Resources was really at the forefront of pushing the scientific community and even organizing the scientific community to come to meetings. Um, and so I took part um, in that when I later became a federal scientist at NOAA um, to have these discussions. What is the future of science to meet those needs, mm. uh, the challenges of the American West, but also the challenges of California? I mean, in a sense, your story is already is a microcosm of the entire climate science community because you started working on hurricane intensity and then Katrina happened, you know, and, and Katrina raised the whole profile of the, you know, made people think that we have to worry about the climate change signal and hurricanes now, regardless of, you know, and then the same thing kind of happened with drought all on your oh, yeah, watch we, as you were writing papers about the stuff. What really solidified my need to go back to my PhD was the fact that Hurricane Katrina happened while I was structuring a bond um, for hurricane risk. <laughs> Yeah. And then as I'm doing my PhD and talking to water managers, talking to people in the West about water issues, you know, the drought's getting worse and worse. And so these are now a few events that I've seen, that I've experienced, that I've experienced from the science side. I've also talked to the practitioners that are figuring out what to do about these things. Um, it only uh, validated that this was the path that I wanted to be on to be working on climate issues. And so my research at UCLA, it was really driven of, I want to understand water issues. I want to understand the observations. I want to understand how to do regional climate modeling and understand these problems on a regional basis. Um, but then after UCLA, I went and I did my postdoc returning to NOAA GFDL to do a postdoc yeah. on global modeling. Um, and because I want to expand to understanding how to use global climate models as well. Right. So let's talk about your time at GFDL. You were postdoc and then became a federal civil servant and spent 10 years, if memory serves, yes. uh, in GFDL. So do you want to say more about how your work evolved during that time? Yeah, I went to GFDL because I wanted to work on this new body of models that were high resolution. Um, mm. So Tom Delworth was leading the group at the, that time and had just come out with this model called CM2.5. Mm -hmm. It was 50 kilometers in the atmosphere and land. And yeah. Why that mattered to me was because to even get mountains in the West, to get the California Sierras, you need 50 kilometers of a minimum. And they had this 50 kilometer mo model. They also had this 25 kilometer atmosphere under development as well for use. And so you could actually look at atmospheric rivers. You could look at snowpack in the mountains directly in these model results because they were actually at the resolution that you could actually res start resolving those problems. So I zeroed in on GFDL because I wanted to work on uh, snow and I wanted to look at um, understanding the global snow, but also understanding predictability in the American West. And then going back mm -hmm. to my interest from PhD, can you predict these things in advance? And so I expanded research on what is driving change in global snow around the world. Um, They're also, um, interestingly, most parts of the world where people live, snowfall is declining. Snowfall is actually increasing in the Arctic because a little bit of warming actually allows the air to hold moisture, actually leads to more snowfall on a total snowfall basis. Um, and there's a few mountains around the world that have seen increases in snowfall, and they're very special. And I also did research on them of why did these some locations actually get more snowfall? Um, so I did a bunch of studies on that, but then also expanded to seasonal decadal prediction, um, predictability of snow snowpack in the American West, predictability um, of atmospheric rivers and seasonal predictions, um, doing work on that with an amazing postdoc that came to GFDL. Um, but then also looking at different types of extremes. So looking at mm -hmm. extreme precipitation events, extreme drought events, heat, um, working with our hurricane um, subject matter experts at GFDL on hurricane issues, um, extra tropical storms. So I was really 
interested in these types of problems where you need large ensembles of data, but you also need high resolutions of the models to actually reproduce the types of extremes that people experience um, instead of something that was more abstract. Right. So at GFDL, you got involved in all these other kinds of research. And I think eventually in the in the management of a lab too, you had some kind of... Uh, yeah, yeah. So I became, um, I was a cohort of three women that went into leadership positions. And it was the first time we had women put into leadership positions at that laboratory. Um, so I mm-hmm. became a deputy division leader of seasonal decadal variability and predictability with Tom Delworth. So wait, uh, maybe we should talk about the three women for a minute. Was that all three at once? Was that like a conscious decision they made that this is something we better fix? Or did it just happen that there were three and that hadn't been before? Uh, the, for that, you would need to ask. <laughs> the Nobody um, ever told you. <laughs> um, you know, we have reasons that we think things happened. Um, but it was three of us were at a part of our careers where we also were the subject matter experts in the areas that um, were needed. And for me in particular, I had always been a um, champion for doing mentorship and trying to manage and mentor our people and uh. the scientists and even was constantly having people asked to be informally mentored by me. And so it was uh. a natural fit. It was something that I wanted to do. Um, in management and managing other science. And it's something I also really enjoyed because as my uh, career was progressing, I saw a lot of interest in making sure that I was helping manage the science, not just doing my own science um, and managing the science of our, our modeling efforts and what type of modeling efforts we would um, pursue in terms of trying to produce seasonal prediction to decadal prediction products, but also data sets for quantifying climate risk. So you described this um, this time at GFDL and working on different problems and thinking, and you use the word risk a lot and actionable. So let me try to formulate a, a thought and see if if you agree about it. My perception is that people who use the word risk a lot are in the climate science world are people who are closer to applications, users, and stakeholders than the typical climate scientist. In other words, if you read most of the climate literature, the word risk is not that heavily used. And my sense of what it means is something along the lines of decision-making under uncertainty. I mean, you're trying to inform decisions, recognizing that everything's probabilistic and there's a lot of stuff you don't know. And of course, in the finance world, this is people are used to this, so you'd seen it in that context. And of course, Noah, your current employer, makes lots of, um, does lots of uh, 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 user-driven things. I mean, produces lots of products, forecasts, and and climate information of all cl- kinds. GFDL is a basic research lab. Was there any sense in your earlier years there that it, it was too ivory tower, or did you feel that it was enough? There was enough of an outlet for this need to connect to the outside world. So when I was hard, hired, part of <laughs> that was part of the discussion was that I even had the leadership at the time of, I really care about these things. And I even, um, we didn't, I didn't mention it, but part of my PhD, I also did a certificate in leaders and sustainability, which was like a mini, it was one of the first kind of like mini MBA programs around sustainability and climate, where I took a bunch of classes at the the business school, because I really felt that this intersection, I really wanted to maintain that and do stuff and do research in that. And that really wasn't, as you said, what GFDL does. And so I decided, okay, I need to spend a few years working with this community and getting um, my more scientific chops, but also reputation mm. built. Um, mm. And I wanted to still start pursuing those things, but I kind of did the more standard type of research before I started to expand into that. Um, but mm. I was very confident in myself that I would do that. So I remember having a discussion with um, the deputy director at the time, Brian Gross, and saying, I'm just going to spend Friday afternoons <laughs> doing some uh, research on climate economics. Um, mm. I had just gotten an NSF grant and I wrote it into the grant that I would do a little mm. bit of time on that. So I'm like, they're paying me now. So I'm going to do this on Friday afternoons. Mm. And then it became Fridays. Um, and then I wrote a paper that with an economist that ended up in nature climate change. And so then it was a high profile journal and they're like, okay, you can spend a little bit of time on this. And so I kept doing that where I was doing some of this work as well. Um, the intersection of climate and economics with some collaborators. Um, and it wasn't what was normally done as you mentioned, but I was showing how it could be done. It was also 
going into really high profile journals and then it would get picked mm. up by the media. It was high profile. It was in this intersection. It was really showing the value and need for the types of modeling and research and products that was being, were being developed. Um, and as time went on, I got, um, more buy-in, more interests and, um, everyone else agreeing that I should be able to spend some time on this. Um, but it was, yeah, it was not a standard thing that people were doing back then, um, when I started Mm. doing it. And even now, maybe I would say even now, but, um, now being able to be one of our leaders, I have discussions. Not everyone should do this. We still need our basic research, but we also need to transform because, um, mm. if we are going to deal with the, the manifestations of climate change, which are going to continue to happening and continue to get worse and continue to, um, evolve in the coming years and decades until, uh, emissions reach zero, uh, we need to prepare and know what to do. And mm. so the science needs to continue needs to be fundamental because that drives the capabilities of our creating models that can actually do things that are actionable. We need to continue to evolve and do that basic research, create those basic observations, do all the work that is needed to underpin everything. But we do need to do more now creating products that are actionable for decision makers and in mind with the evolution of how the science needs to go for the challenges and needs that are going to evolve based on those manifestations of climate. And so I spend a lot of my time thinking about that. So, okay, so this is jumping past a bit of your biography. <laughs> Sorry, I keep doing that. Your, no, 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 it's, I, I, no, it, that's fine. Um, I think we should talk about this now because it's, it, it's your current role and it also connects to all the things you've been saying. So, so would you, is your, do you, would you endorse the view that the typical, let's say, research scientist at, at GFDL, or let's not pick on GFDL, let's make it broader, the typical research scientist at who does climate science at a federal agency or even an academic institution should have a broader agenda than they have had in the past? Should we all, you know, be try to have a little bit of a footprint more like yours in some way or other? Should we be more understanding of how the information is being used and incorporate that into our education and research more than we have? I do not think everyone should take the exact same career path and have the same views as me. <laughs> um, we, I, I we still, we still need, um, there's still so much that is needed on the basic fundamental research and science, but we do need to, I think, improve our education and improve the capabilities of the workforce to being able to do more this interdisciplinary, both for um, K through 12 and then college education. So people leave um, their educations from climate and earth system science, um, mm. being able to work at these different intersections, um, because every single sector, every single industry is going to need climate information and understand how to use it and integrate it into their work. Um, but even for our workforce, we've been talking about, um, the need for people to be able to collaborate more across different, um, disciplines and, mm. Um, that, you know, we need people that have that creativity and have that desire. And I am seeing it really in the junior parts of the workforce that people really want to do more of that going forward and figure out how to use their expertise and work with other people and other groups. Um, and so there, there is an expansion of it and it's a departure for some of the, um, decades past where it was, um, singularly focused on developing this one specific product or type um, that now there's uh, a different flavor to what needs to be done. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I'm actually, artic- I guess I'm articulating my own view and see if I can get you to um, to comment on it. It seems to me that the historical trajectory of many of us in our field was we just do the science. We try to be as good at it as we can we write about it in academic journals and there's sort of a limited number of channels through which that gets out to the public, whether it be forecast products from NOAA or the IPCC or the media picking stuff up, but we don't really have to think about that too hard. And what's changed now in this demand for climate information being much broader in the last few years, as you've, as you've mentioned, is that the feeling that, that a lot of the science we're doing is a bit mismatched. There's not enough that, that it's, um, 
I don't know if applied is the right word, but there's not enough sort of use-driven science. And the drive to do more of it, my perception is it comes from, to some extent, from the top, from senior leaders like yourself, but also in academia, you know, from university presidents and deans, and from the bottom, where the youngest students are really driven by the societal problem. And it's the people... It's the it's the people in between like me who are the slowest to sort of uh, adapt to this because we came up through a system that didn't emphasize it. Yeah. Does that sound I I do see that as well. (laughs) And it um I think I think there will be a evolution of the types of work that people do. Um and really focusing on that junior group, the junior group is super motivated on this, um, in every conversation I have. And I'm really excited about the innovation of that. And as part of my work too, I'm trying to make sure that we have opportunities for those people to be innovative and come forward with those ideas. So they're not waiting until, um, they're much more seniors start executing on those solutions oriented projects. Um, so it's also trying to, um, make sure that we cultivate these, um, these uh, cultivate a new culture of innovation around this because there's so much mm. demand for it and there's so much interest in mm. it, particularly in the younger groups. That I want to make sure that people are able to execute on that. So we're not waiting yeah. okay, for so, it. <laughs> so I, so I have, yeah. So before we get to the a couple things, I really want to ask you. We should talk about your time at um, J.P. Morgan Chase and then getting into your current job. Of course, how, you know, how would you? What can we say about that recent? trajectory that got you where you are now? Uh, yeah. So, um, I was always working at these intersections and wanting to have actionable science that I was doing. And I started getting recruited to banks and because I had, again, so, so they the saw you. Uh, so, so oh, you think it was that prior experience that led them. It was, um, it was actually a different bank started recruiting me first. And then I was like, well, if okay. I'm going to talk to one, I'm going to talk to all of them and figure out. And they were, so I was starting to get recruited to different banks and private equity firms and venture capital firms to be an in-house climate scientist. And I see. at the time, that really wasn't a thing <laughs> um, again. Yeah. And so I talked to all of them and I talked about what people needed and what they were seeing. And I was I had an idea of what I thought they the company should need. And so I ended up at um, J.P. Morgan with this really, it was as the first climate scientist there. Um and I had multiple things that I was doing. I would produce research to try and communicate climate and how it affect investment decisions. I also met with, with um, large groups and I would give speeches about climate and how it was integrated into all industries and how people should be thinking about it differently. But then I was also talking about risk and how to start quantifying risk to business um, and advising on new ways to invest for climate for climate solutions. Um, uh-huh. And... Um, it was really eye-opening of for me of because after being in the echo chamber of a science organization and then going into a company and seeing what people understood about climate, it really taught yeah. me where those disconnects of communication were happening and what was uh-huh. important information that people needed. Um, and I found it fascinating because I was able to really understand where those gaps were, but also what type of information was needed and would be actionable and also what was happening right. in terms of new companies. Um, so I didn't answer your first, the question that got us there. Like, why did perhaps also like why did I go there? I chose to go there because I I really wanted to learn what was going on and understand that. Yeah, no, I think the decision why to go there makes a lot of sense given everything you that led up to it. So I mean, you didn't have a really specific um, sort of operational responsibility. It sounded like they wanted to do more on climate, so they they threw you in to look at the whole range of everything and and. <laughs> It, and think about how to incorporate climate in in a very broad way. It was, um, I would say, it was a it was a multifaceted role because I was the first senior climate scientist brought in, <laughs> and so I was I was given a lot of um, I was given a lot of leeway to be able to figure it out and define the yeah. role and to work it out. And so, like every good researcher, I was like, I want to just figure it out. I'm going to talk to all these people and try and. Um, develop my role and define it as we went along, um, which is not something I really recommend for anyone if they're going into a place to just try and like really figure it out and define your role as you go along. Cause that can be incredibly stressful if you don't have the support, but I was given the support to do that and figure mm. it out and work with mm. them. And so, um, 
I think it's, and now I've seen the other banks and other groups are starting to hire climate um, leads. Mm. Um, and uh, something that was told to me is that, you know, experts um, in other industries, they think, well, I'll read a few things about climate and I'll understand it. But often when mm. people start doing that, um, they start realizing how little they know about the problem. And that's when they mm. start asking for an expert to come in to help them sift through and understand and make sense of everything. Um, so I was yeah. in that special time when they were trying to make sense of things and trying to learn. Um, and so it was a, a fast-paced year of trying to help people get up the curve and understand climate. Um, so and was it only one year? I was there for roughly a year. A little okay. Over a year. Okay, time flies. So then... <laughs> Somebody it's COVID called you time, for this job. so it's much <laughs> like COVID. Oh, years. right, that too. Yeah. And so then you were recruited for this job. Yes, I was. Out of there. Yeah. And I'm guessing that, I mean, that the all the private sector experience must have been part of the reason that that uh, you were attracted for this role. I mean, because not everyone would have that. It's very distinguishing. Yeah. So. Part of it is being able to, part of it was really also communicating how NOAA science and technology and the work that we do matters for every single industry and and the economy. Um, So NOAA, most most people don't know this, but NOAA is actually under the Department of Commerce. Um, And so we have intersections across different bureaus of commerce um, that we can work with. And particularly under this administration, we're trying to have those connections. Like I work with the U.S. Patent Trade Office. We work with the small business. Uh, groups. We work with um, business development. We work with census and others. And so like now is a special time where everyone's trying, similarly to what I was doing at J.P. Morgan, is every bureau within commerce, but then across the entire government, is trying to figure out how does climate get integrated into my work? Um, right. And so in a way, I was the chief scientist in my last role. I come in to know as a chief scientist and I'm doing the work within NOAA, but then I'm also helping with us engage with these other bureaus, with these other agencies to make sure the science is being used in decision-making and we're figuring out how to do that. And so I think I was thrown into the fire in the private sector to figure out how to do that. And then I was brought back and now I'm figure- helping work on figuring that out in the federal government as well. Right. And so as chief scientist of NOAA, my understanding is that, as you sort of just said, you the agency does a huge number of things. I mean, there's the weather service, there's climate, there's fisheries, there's all these different things. All of it is your remit, right? Yeah. And Chief so scientist of it all. Right. And so you have to figure out how to use science and all those different, you know, how to make the, the, the use the best science, produce the best science, all of that. It's a very, um, it's a, it's a, a broad and, and complex job. Clearly. I'm wondering if you, see the job to what extent you see the job as um you know you're called to public service you are trying to make the agency the best it can be and and respond to all the needs or versus do you come with a with any um do do you see a specific mission i mean do you is there something you think you can change is there you know some way in which some way as which you look across all these things that you think, how can I make this better? And there's some particular answer that motivates how you come into all those interactions. I mean, how, yeah, how do you so, think about it? So you're, you're very much on the right track where I felt a duty to serve when asked to bring my private sector experience and my technical knowledge of hydroclimate and market impacts back to NOAA. So it wasn't just my mm-hmm. private sector experience. It was also the fact that I was developing all this work at GFDL of developing yeah. seasonal decadal predictions, creating products, um, we didn't mention it, but my time there, I was also working with the National Weather Service on projects. I was also reaching out to, with talking with fisheries. I was talking with our chief economist, and we were trying to build programs mm-hmm. even within different agencies within commerce at the time. And so I had this deep technical expertise of climate modeling and the future mm-hmm. of climate and understanding climate products um, mm-hmm. and how to do that. But then also had all the connections across the agency of how one Mm, might mm. start doing these things. And so I was asked to bring the private sector experience back, but also bring that technical knowledge back. And so I felt this strong sense of duty to come back at Mm. this time to help do that with NOAA, to make those connections and represent all the different line offices of NOAA and figure out how all of them can be working towards building a we have this part of our strategic plan, a climate-ready nation, a nation that is prepared to deal with the challenges of climate change and everything that we do. And so 
I felt a duty to come back because I felt that I had this very unique expertise that was at a really at a really critical time in the agency to be thinking about how do we use climate information, how do we evolve our science, our technology to meet these rising challenges, um, and how do we start building this out? Um, but then also, how do we engage with every with these different sectors across commerce? How do we engage with other agencies to make sure they're making smart climate decisions? And so I felt I had to come back. Um, I had a, I was very happy with my job and the people that I was working with. And I was like, yeah. I have to come back when I'm asked to come back and serve. Yeah, it's right. So I, the private sector experience was distinguishing, but you also had a, a I'm re- trying to summarize what you just said, that you also had a broader footprint than most during your time at GFDL. And so they, I did. people could see that. And that was, a, that was really useful. So I know I'm, I'm, we're running out of time, but I, I want, I, it's not that I want to dwell on the private sector, but I'm really interested <laughs> to hear your role on, your view on the, the role of public versus private. In other words, this is not the question about, the, this is a question about NOAA really, is what, there's a huge and growing demand for climate information from all kinds of places, climate risk, you know, probability of extreme events, how things are changing, how it translates to impacts, you know, all the way down to economic modeling. How much of this information should NOAA or the federal government in general provide versus what is, you know, what should the private sector do? There seems to be, a, you know, there's a lot that the private sector is doing. Everything depends on NOAA data. You know, everything the private sector is doing depends on the data that comes from the weather service and the satellites and the models and everything. But at the same time, there's a tremendous amount of stuff happening privately that's, you know, that you have to pay to get access to. And so how do you think about that must come up daily? Mm -hmm. How do you approach that question? Part of the question that you're coming to is the access to data, the equitability of services and information. Yes. And, uh, I, I think it's really important juncture as everyone's focusing on it you're getting to the heart of the question of like what types of authoritative information do we need? And do we need the government providing because that fundamental information and data can underpin everything else in the development of commerce around it. And so I'm hyper-focused on making sure that we are, we are developing those types of data sets, those science, those techniques to be able to support that and support that going forward. But even trying to figure out how do we, partner with the private sector on some of the development. So we're transferring that technology as fast as we can. So yeah. that's why we're working with the U S patent trade office and talking with them. And they, they created this new uh, capability with their fast tracking patents for climate solutions. And um, we're talking to them about what our clients and some, giving them science and technical advice and support as they need it. Um, we're signing uh, these CRADA agreements, which allow us to do and MOUs with the private sector to be able to produce, create joint um, research projects that result in science and technology from NOAA being transferred and then scaled up um, into new products. So we're trying to define those places where we know that we need to develop and we need to develop things forward and make sure that mm-hmm. those products are equitably available and are available to different types of users from a community trying to figure out what type of sewer they should um, develop for future precipitation rates or how to handle extreme heat all the way up to mm. super sophisticated users that can have access to cloud computing on supercomputers to do massive data analysis. Um, so we're trying to make sure that we are able to provide everything um, and provide them at different places and points with different products or different data access so they can actually use it. And then there's the underpinning of, okay, this is what we have right now, but then also how are we evolving our science and technology going forward as we see these evolving needs and we're getting feedback from the private sector on the needs to make sure that we also provide that because ultimately, um, with the backing of the federal government, we have authoritative information that everyone sees and they want. And so we yep. need to make sure that we are rising to that challenge to be able to allow for those solutions and technologies to grow and to develop um, to meet the problems that we will face uh, today and growing into the future. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's so much more I want to ask you about this, but I want to respect the the time that you set aside for us here. Is there anything else you want to say? Is there something I should have asked that I that I didn't? Um, or any other? Um, you know, I, we didn't get it. We didn't spend enough time on your current role, but um, at times we got into the deepness of my soul, and I would say that on the <laughs> lightness of it, I am. 
I'm really excited about this moment in time. I've never seen so many people so enthusiastic, so excited about climate solutions and thinking about climate and climate issues. And I think it's a really exciting time um, to be working on these types of problems. And I think it's actually, it's a really exciting time where we are constantly hiring to it. Noah, if people are really action oriented and solution oriented, like really excited, the roles that are going to start opening up around these different things. Um, and I think that we need bright minds working on these problems. So for the younger listeners, I'm really excited for them to be working on that. And I encourage them and I can't wait to see what they do because I'm just amazed by everything that I'm seeing right now. Okay. Well, that's a positive uplifting note. Um, thank you so much for your service and your leadership and, um, and especially for taking the time to talk to me. Today. Yes. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you for having me and for all that you're doing with us. Okay. As the chief scientist said, it's a really exciting time to be working on climate. And she's an embodiment of that, if anyone is. It's easy sometimes to think of climate change just as a disturbing and scary problem. And it is that but solving problems is what life's about, right? And Sarah Kapnick's enthusiasm and positivity are infectious. I'm so glad and honored, really, to have been able to record that conversation with her. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli, and our editing and audio post-production are by Duotone Audio Group, where our editor, post-producer, and audio engineer is Eugenio Gonzalez. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection.